This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Dear landlord, please don't put a price on my soul. My burden is heavy. My dreams are beyond control. When that steamboat whistle blows, I'm going to give you all I got to give. And I do hope you receive it well, depending on the way that you feel that you live. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about Dear Landlord from 1967's John Wesley Harding is fellow Bobcat Brian McCaskill. Hi, Brian. Hey, Rob, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we even talk about your origin story with Bob and all that other stuff that we always get into, I have to thank you publicly because a couple of months ago, I ran a, I don't know if contest is the word, but let's call it a, a drawing, a contest, whatever you want to call it, which was to uh, inspire donations uh, from guests to the human rights campaign. Because uh, lesbian, gay, trans rights are very important to me. They should be important to anyone. Anyone who's concerned with having rights should be concerned about that. And I wanted to spur some donations. And the winner, as or you know, everyone's a winner. Everyone who donated is a winner in my book. But the winner got to pick whatever it was they wanted to talk about in Bob Dylan. It could have been a song. It could be a video. It could be a speech, anything you wanted. So we'll talk, we'll get to this shortly, Brian, about why you wanted to talk about Dear Landlord. But the Human Rights Campaign, as you just mentioned, their goal is to ensure that all LGBTQ people, and particularly those who are trans, people of color, and HIV+, are treated as full and equal citizens within our movement across our country and around the world. It's a great cause. And I thank everyone who donated to Human Rights Campaign as part of that drawing. Uh, everyone that donated will eventually be on the show. I had to pick one first person to be on, and Brian, you were the one. So again, so thank you so much for the donation. I very much appreciate it. No problem. I'm happy to do it, of course. And, and again, you know, thanks for having me. Pretty excited to be on. Absolutely. So, okay, we're going to talk about your landlord. But first, of course, Brian, how did you become a fan of Bob in the first place? Yeah, so I, so a little bit of background. My dad's a fan uh he and he was kind of a fan of kind of the years between planet waves and like street legal live at Budokan. okay uh so when i was a kid you know i remember six seven years old hearing um the Budokan version of all i really want to do and a lot of desire and street legal and stuff like that so it was in the it was in the peripheral uh and i and i liked it uh, as much as any seven eight year old's gonna like music right <laughs> Uh, so I, I go along, you know, I'm, I'm doing my thing, a normal kid kind of growing up in Jersey and around the mid nineties, I guess I was on 12, uh, 11, 12 years old. There was a kind of a classic rock, uh, revival thing going on. It was a time of the Beatles anthology and all that. And, uh, so I was kind of into that, you know, you're trying to find yourself as you're, as you're kind of becoming a preteen, I guess. And I remember going to the library. And a little library, and we they we got two CDs out. I got an Eric Clapton CD, and I got Bob Dylan MTV Unplugged because I you know I kind of knew Dylan and MTV he was kind of cool, so I did that. Went home, put on MTV Unplugged, heard it, really liked it, and then I heard Desolation Row, and it it knocked me out. I mean, I just I must have listened to that song on a repeat 
for weeks. It was right uh, during a Christmas winter vacation. And I think I stayed home that week and just played Desolation Rail and repeat. I probably <laughs> drove my parents insane, my brother and my sister and myself a little bit insane. Uh, are you okay, Brian? Is there anything right? What are you listening to? And, uh, and I mean, it was just it was such a different song. It's not even, it didn't even register as a song, you know, all the, you know, the characters and stuff. I had no idea what it meant. Uh, I still don't know if I have a good idea of where it meant, but it's probably my favorite Dylan song. Uh, so yeah, that kind of started it after that, you know, kind of bugged my dad to borrow some of his records. I didn't have all of them, but, uh, I filled in the rest and, uh, just started collecting and kind of became, an obsessive Dylan fan, as you know, kids that are 12, 13, 14, they get obsessive about things. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I was definitely that. And from then took on a life of its own. What, what was it about the, you know, that's a, that's a pretty young age to kind of be getting into. What was it? Can you remember? What was it that struck you? Was it the, the poetry? Was it the music? Was it the sort of rebellious stance that he had? I mean, that's, you know, that, was... that's interesting. It's an interesting thing for a 12 year old to get really into. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. I think it was. I didn't understand it. And it was so much different than what I thought a song was. You know, you, you listen to pop songs when you're a kid, right? And then some songs are a little more complicated than others. But here comes this thing. It's 10, 11 minutes long, right? Mm. Uh, it has a lot of words, a lot of visuals that I thought were kind of cool. Again, I didn't understand them. Uh, and just the fact that this is what a song could be if we allowed it to be that, right? So no chorus, you know, nothing like that. It wasn't a love song. Uh, and it was just a constant barrage of imagery and characters and everything. I loved it. And and again, you know, you, you, you get done with that and you listen to any other song and I be, kind of became like a 12-year-old snob. I was like, <laughs> it's all right, but have you heard Desolation? No, <laughs> you know, it's four times as long and it doesn't, you know, all this stuff. And I, like I said, I did not understand it as a 12-year-old. I like to think I understand it a little bit now. Uh, but it was just so unique and so different and i knew that if i kept on it there's going to be more songs like that and eventually maybe i'll get a glimpse of what he's talking about and uh, so that's so that's what it was it was just so different uh and i remember picking apart the lines like einstein disguised as robin hood what trying to visualize that <laughs> as a 12 year old or as anyone you know it's just a it's a fun thing to visualize was there one era of his that you sort of no pun intended plugged into more than others as you were collecting the Getting through all the songs and the records? Not really. You know, I remember, I remember going to the, the, the CD store, I guess, one of them at the local mall. And I, you know, I must have got a gift certificate or saved some money allowance or something. And I remember, okay, I'm going to get a Dylan CD. And uh, the only one they had, I had a few to choose from, but they didn't have a lot. And they had the freewheeling Bob Dylan. And I said, I don't want this one. It's kind of like a country thing, I guess. It's kind of like acoustic, but whatever, I'll get it. And of course, I love that album. It's still one of my favorite albums. Uh, And I would just kind of, you know, the internet was kind of a thing, not really a thing. So I just kind of bought whatever CD was there. You know, I didn't really have an eye. I didn't have anywhere to go. You know, I just kind of plucked one and said, let me listen to this. You know, I remember I was, I got infidels early and, you know, you listen to freewheeling Bob Dylan and that's one thing. And you listen to infidels and you have to make sure you listen to the same artist. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Yeah. So this different. the same planet. Like what is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then of course to a kid, that's so cool. It's almost like Dylan was a genre unto himself. 
and, and you know to this day it's almost that 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 way so i you know it was just so much to sink your teeth into and so much to explore um so then i mean you know obviously i got the hits blonde on blonde and all that stuff and like i said my dad had it was funny whenever there were uh, you know, Christmas or Father's Day or my dad's birthday, I would get him a Dylan CD, and I think he caught on pretty quick that uh, I, I wasn't buying him a gift; I was buying myself a gift. <laughs> uh, but he was okay with that. Like I said, he, he was a fan. Uh, I begged him to take him to my take me to the the Dylan show when I was, I guess, ninety seven. So right before Time and a Mind came out, so I was like thirteen or, or something like that, and uh, saw him, which which was obviously really cool for a thirteen year old to be at their first concert and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, just kind of, I didn't focus on a, on a time period. I just kind of was, was willing to dig into anything he did. Your dad must have loved that. Uh, well, first of all, getting him a CD, it's like better than like a tie, you know? Yeah, yeah, so that's exactly. already better. A typical dad gift. So that's already good. I mean, even if you're listening to it too, I'm sure he was proud of that, but mm-hmm. he must have loved to be able to take his 14, 15 year old son to a Dylan concert. I would imagine for any, dad who's a dylan fan that's that's got to be an amazing experience yeah and i think i mean my dad wasn't like a hardcore dylan fan right he was just a he's liked it probably was his favorite artist and he liked springsteen and, and stuff like that from the 70s uh but yeah I, th- I think it was fun for him i think it got him out of the house to go see dylan and you know as i know you have kids and everything it's tough to you know organize a, to go out to a concert and stuff uh, but yeah, it was fun. So we saw him then. I think we saw him after Time and I came out. And then I remember for his 50th birthday, I took him. And that's when I was saw Dylan, you know, dozens and dozens of times. Uh, that was a little bit later when I was an adult. We saw him. And uh, and that was kind of fun to see him again with my dad. And my dad's been to shows uh, without me a few. Uh, he has his brothers uh, around the country. So he's he's gone with them. But, uh, you know, obviously most of the shows I go to now with my friends, I took my, I did take my daughter two years ago to her first show when she was 10 and she got a kick out of it. So that was really cool to kind of pass that on to her. Did she, she enjoyed it? She did. You know, it was in Philadelphia. It was a rough and rowdy, rough and rowdy ways tour, uh, you know, coming off of COVID. And, uh, you know, I just really wanted to take my kid to a Dylan show. Right. And, uh, now it was her first concert. She was 10. It was a night out with dad. So of course she's going to like it. I remember walking to the car and I said, okay, Lily, what was your favorite song? And she goes, Jimmy Reed, Jimmy Reed. And that last one about serving somebody. <laughs> and I was like, you, you paid attention. You know, you attention. She was like, well, you play him enough in the car. You know, I'm really so, uh, yeah, she enjoyed it. I think, you know, mostly she enjoyed it because it was her first concert. She didn't know what to expect. Um, but you got a kick out of it. And I think, and obviously I enjoyed bringing her more than she enjoyed being, being brought, but she, uh, actually has the, the concert poster in her room, uh, right next to the Taylor Swift poster where it belongs. So I'm really happy. Perfect. About that. That's yeah. perfect. That's it. I'm Phil, you said Philadelphia. I wonder if that was the same show that I was at because I saw the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour in Philadelphia. I think he did two nights. In Philly, nights. I want to say I saw the second one. Yeah, I don't remember which one I saw, but I it was wonder. The same set list. Yeah, I, I, I forget the date. I'm going to have to look. Uh, yeah, I, well, I was going to say I can hop into the other room and look at the poster, but it's the same poster for both nights. Yeah, uh, the one he talked about uh, how Rocky or Sylvester Stallone should have won an Oscar, but of course he didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I love that joke. That's really cool. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. How many times have you seen him at this point? I lost count, which should tell you. Uh, it's got to be around 50. Uh, wow. Like that, maybe more. Well, you got to remember, I was so I went to Rutgers and I went to Rutgers in like the early 2000s. And from Rutgers, you know, 
for your worldwide listeners. It's about a 40 minute train ride into New York City and about a right. 45 minute train ride into Philadelphia. Yep. And yep. of course, Dylan was touring all the time. And, you know, what else was I going to do? Right. So, you know, so I'm in New York a bunch. Uh, you know, so I'm in Jersey and Philadelphia. And then that was also the time where the internet was, you know, it was connecting to people. So, uh, some people might remember the Dylan pool days and, uh, I was really involved in that and meeting people and, Hey, you know, I don't, I never met you before, but I know you're a Dylan fan. You want to give me a ride to some concert in Maryland and, uh, okay, cool. And, you know, we did that. So, uh, it was really cool. I got to meet a lot of fans and again, you know, you're 21, 22 years old, you're, you know, Nothing you're doing in life is all that important that you can't cancel it to go see a Dylan show. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I got lucky. And as I go older, you know, you have kids, it's tougher to get to a bunch of shows, but it's something that, you know, he, he comes around New York, New Jersey a lot. And, uh, we're lucky to have him. Absolutely. Do you have tickets to the next set of shows since he's coming around here again? Yeah. I got tickets to the last show in Newark, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, I thought it was the last show of the tour, but I heard a rumor is adding on some more. Of course, by the time this airs, uh, that rumor will be, will be proven true or proven false. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, excited again. Uh, probably just going to one show, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll attack another one on. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I got tickets too. We're seeing him in Philadelphia and I'm yeah. very, very excited. So, so you're, I was, I was going to ask what's your first new Dylan record? It sounds like that would have been time out of mind, right? That would have been. It was. I rode my bike to the record store. We had an old independent record store and I rode my bike. Got <laughs> you lived it. in the fifties, Brian? I don't understand. <laughs> well, the guy, the record store was out of the fifties. It was actually kind of a cool record store. The guy who owned it was some old army event who liked blues and jazz. He was really cool. And uh, I was down there and, you know, bought the record because I could ride my bike. Uh, and in fact, later he had this promo time out of mind piece in the window and about you know, probably six months a year after the record came out, I said, can you sell me that? And he goes, get, take it, kid. You know, get away from me, kid. You're bothering me, you know? So I begged him, and he gave me the promotional poster, too. Which I oh, that's cool. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, so Time Out of Mind was the first one. And, of course, at 13 years old, listening to Time Out of Mind, <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, you don't it doesn't quite grab you. Uh, you know, it's not a young man's record. <laughs> uh, but it was the new Dylan record. And I mm-hmm. felt, you know, listen, I, I didn't get to hear Highway 61 when it came out, but I got to hear Time Out of Mind. So it was really special. And of course, since then, there's been, there's been a bunch that I got to, you know, experience for the first time along with everyone else. Someday I too will have my heart broken. And it sounds really cool because you get a cool record out of it, apparently. Yeah. Hey, if every time <laughs> I had my heart broken, I made Time Out of Mind, you know, it'd be pretty cool. It's worth it. Yeah. You're, <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're Generation Tomb, which is, uh, that's really yeah, fantastic. Generation so. Tomb. I never thought about that, but I like it. I, I really like said the more I go on, the more shows I do, and the more I talk to younger fans, it's, it really is. There's so many firsts that Dylan fans have. And one of them is what's your first new Dylan record? Cause it's, that's, it's, it's, a, it's got a different, you have a different relationship with it than you have with any of the rest. Cause you're, you know, you are there at the front lines when it yeah. comes out and your opinion is forming kind of as honestly as it's ever going to, as opposed to the rest where you're reading about it and you're like, Oh, well, I've heard this one isn't as great. Or I've heard this one is a masterpiece. There's always that little bit of something in your brain about it, but when it's brand new, it's all you, you know, it's, it's, it's fresh. So that, and that's a great, I mean, Bob said in interviews, well, no, he didn't say in interviews. He has been quoted as saying in interviews that he felt that a new generation of fans deserved new songs. Mm-hmm. And so he's talking about you in that case. 
Yeah, yeah, and I I heard that when I heard that I'm like, yeah, Bob, how how do you know that mm-hmm. uh, about me? Uh, you know, it's funny you say that, and it's it's all true. You know, I I kind of think I was lucky in a way, and this is going to sound like an old man yelling at a cloud, uh, <laughs> but. You know, when I first got Blonde on Blonde, I didn't know it was Blonde on Blonde, right? I mm-hmm. knew it was a Dylan record. You know, I knew some of the songs on it, but I didn't know how revered it was. One, because I was younger. And two, you know, because I couldn't just look it up. I couldn't Google the record before I got it. You know, I didn't know Self Portrait was supposed to be bad when I got it. You know, I just I just thought it was a Dylan record. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. Uh, and I, obviously that's lost now. Now, the, the good thing is, I mean, kids have so much stuff at their disposal now and that uh, you can listen to live shows and everything and really get get a ton of people's opinions so that that's a that's a good thing probably in more ways than it's not but it was kind of neat to listen to a record from 30 years ago and saying you know i don't know what the critics thought of it but i'm just gonna listen to it and, and eat it up and see you know if i like it more or less than the last one and you know that kind of real kind of virgin view of it where you're just it's fresh snow you know you're just jumping into it uh that was really fun when i was 13 14 15 years old it was really fun it is yeah it's it's a great experience i i remember that remember gobbling up the records and just consuming them like you did you know just get it or clicking with one song and playing it over and i did that for changing the guards i remember that i I played that song 40 gajillion times and it was (laughs) that was on cassette so i had to rewind it every time ka-chunk and play it again, <laughs> yeah. you know. I was just, and my my parents were like, "All right, enough with the whatever that song is. Enough with it." I was like, "You don't understand." So, <laughs> well, all that is awesome. That's a great origin story. So that's really cool. Congrats to your dad, and congrats to your daughter keeping it through the family. Yeah. That's uh, that is just absolutely fantastic. So, okay, dear landlord, great song off a great record, but I am curious as to why this one when you could have chosen anything not even just songs anything involving the history of bob dylan to talk about why did you end up picking this so first of all when he said anything you know when i was you know chosen and i got lucky i said well i'm gonna pick a dylan song right i'm gonna do the traditional pod dylan thing you know pick a dylan tune i love dear landlord uh i i love big fan of john leslie harding it's one of my top five favorite albums uh and, and I know I, according to my wife, I'd probably say that about 15 albums, but I really think John Lossie Harding's up there. Uh, I think Dear Landlord gets lost a little bit, uh, partly because he never did a lot of the John Lossie Harding songs live because right. he was in that part of his career. He wasn't playing live. And then, you know, a bunch of other things happened. But uh, Dear Landlord's even more unique because so with John Lossie Harding, you get a lot of these, you know, quick uh songs with this imagery those is biblical references and everything and then you have the two kind of country natural skyline songs at the end of it and then there's dear landlord uh, he plays piano on it so it sounds different you could argue maybe it has some biblical imagery but i really don't think so and it just it, you know it opens the second side of it and it just i i love the song uh I think his voice sounds great on it. I love the music and the lyrics. I think they're unique. And I think the message is a little bit unique for a Dylan song. So that's, that's why I chose it. I thought it was going to be an interesting one to, to sink her teeth into. So how so? What do you mean by the language is, is unique? Well, I think that it's, it's, it's really easy. I mean, he, listen, he, he's your landlord, right? So the landlord tenant relationship has been wrote about, all through, you know, you know, literature and everything. It's a pretty common, you know, relationship. Uh, 
but it's it's dear landlord, but he never really mentions anything about being a landlord and a tenant. You know, it's it's kind of the that first line of the verse and of course the title of the song, but then he kind of moves away from it. And I think that, at least in my opinion, I guess, and I think that it's the type of song that one you can interpret it a few different ways. And I'm a big believer, and I think you are too, that there's no right or wrong way to interpret a Dylan song, mm-hmm. which is what makes it so great. Uh, but you can interpret it a few different ways. Um, and of course, that's that's what you know. As Dylan obsesses, I, I think that's what keeps drawing us back to Dylan is that you can read a song and hear it, and ten years later, it, it just means something a lot different to you. And I think this is one of the songs that always that always did that for me. Well, I'll tell you that is exactly what happened in, in this case because we've done this uh, song on the show before, a bunch of years ago. I think about five years ago at this point. So, like when you mentioned it, I was like, again, I was willing. I said the rule was. Anything you wanted. So even if you would pick something we had just talked about a month ago, I would have said yes, because I, I stick to, I was going to stick to the letter of the law of the, of the <laughs> yeah. agreement. But nevertheless, it was like, well, this was like five years ago. I think we talked about dear landlords. So I was like, all right, enough time has passed. And what you're just talking about is that when I last talked about dear landlord and all the years I've had this song in my, rattling around in my head, I, I had a certain read on it. I mean, we all know supposedly, you know, uh, the thing about that, it's about Albert Grossman and Dylan yeah. himself has said, I can understand why people would say it. He sort yeah. of, he sort of dismissed that, but he also acknowledged, oh yeah, I could see why people would think that. And, you know, we all know about his relationship with Grossman at the, at the time and why that would make sense. And there's all that was wrapped up, but I never really was worried that much about that part of it. I had my own sort of set of meanings, but in the meantime, in that intervening five, six years, since we did the show, I've kind of arrived at a whole new version of the song in my head and again like you were just saying it's not right or wrong it's just this was a i've come up with a new meaning to it or a new origin for it that i didn't have five years ago and it's not like i'm sitting here listening to dear landlord every day you know what i mean where i'm like oh i'm constantly obsessing over you know it's like i've listened to it every so often i listen to john wesley harding every so often but for some reason as i was sort of prepping this one or thinking about that we were going to do it this whole other creation of it uh, came to mind and that's well, with the last couple of years and it's the same thing with me it's it's funny you say that because so one i didn't know you did this song i was actually looking back and i guess i missed it i mean there's a lot of ones or whatever i, I missed it so i didn't i don't and even if i did know you you you, you did it on the podcast before i don't know if i would have went back and listened to it because i was you know that might i don't know muddy the waters sure, uh, sure. in a weird way but so I'll go first. So when I first got into this song, uh, and it was probably in, you know, there's phases of getting into it. You hear it the first time you like it, but then when it really grabs you, uh, I was in my twenties and I took it to mean, uh, a kind of a parental, you know, son, dad, son, mom type relationship. Uh, maybe because I was in my twenties, you know, don't put a price on my soul. My dreams are beyond control. You know, I'm going to give you all I got to give and I do hope you receive it well, you know, but, but this is what I'm going to do. And I, I kind of took it to mean that. Uh, and of course it, maybe it does. Uh, that wasn't a wrong interpretation, I don't think. Uh, but it has changed. And I mean, you know, listen, it's a great song. It's going to hit you in different ways at different parts of your life. And maybe in 10, 20 years, it'll hit me with another way. I, I do want to say I never was satisfied or liked. Of course, I contradicted myself. There's no way to interpret. There's no bad way to interpret it. Now I'm going to give you a bad way. Uh, <laughs> the Albert Grossman theory. And, and the reason I always had a problem with that 
is they said, well, well, you know, Albert Grossman was Dylan's landlord at some time in the mid 60s. I don't know if it was right when he did this song, but around that time. And I said, well, if Bob Dylan writes a song about, you know, dear landlord, I think it's going to be about anything except his landlord. Dylan's bigger than that. You know, he's not going to he's not going to make it easy on us. But of course, maybe maybe he maybe he is. Uh, I know he kind of dismissed it, but he kind of he kind of said, you know, I could I could see it that way. So, yeah, I mean, it has it has changed the meaning. Uh, and I, you know, I think it's, you know, he's definitely playing off that landlord part of part of literature that that's always and it's still to this day. I mean, in society, we have a landlord. Right. And and sometimes that's I mean, usually most of the time that's a power imbalanced relationship, you know, landlord tenant. Uh, you can write tons of you know, socioeconomical stories about landlords. And, you know, obviously it's all over fiction. So that's what Dylan does. Dylan knows that. And he's using this, this trope of the landlord. I think he's using it really effectively. Yeah. I mean, landlord in our culture is shorthand for probably not a nice person. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes slumlord, yeah. if you want to go that far with it. But yeah, you, you know, you're sort of front loading the song by calling it Dear Landlord, mm-hmm. because nobody likes landlords. You know, <laughs> I mean, you might have a, yeah. you know, you personally might have a good one or an okay one, but it's, it's an easy way to say, oh, this is someone who has a lot of power yeah. over somebody. And as we all know, Bob Dylan is very, very concerned with imbalances of power mm-hmm. in every single aspect of life. That is his main concern. Uh, in a lot of ways. And so you think about that, that that's the relationship he's got. I mean, yeah, he could be talking about Grossman. He could be talking about his record company, who we all know was breathing down his neck, yep. even though he's finishing a record. By the way, this song was the last song recorded for yep. uh, John Wesley Harding. And it's unique because it's got the piano. It's mm-hmm. the only song in the record that he's playing the piano on. It's the first piano song he's done in a couple of years at this point. So it's interesting. That's the, you know, John Wesley Harding, even among Dylan records, I think is a really wonderfully cohesive whole. Um, I don't call it like a concept album because I think when you hear that, you tend to think of like, you know, prog rock from the seventies. And it, it's, it, yeah. this is certainly not that, but John Wesley Harding really has, I'd say a, a specific identity. And so I feel like all the songs fit within that framework to some extent i mean even during the traveling through box set that came out a couple of years ago like there were no there were no outtakes i mean there are alternate versions of some songs i've never heard an alternate version of this song but there were no alternate songs it wasn't like there was some 13th song for written for john wesley harding didn't make it on the record it's no what he wrote is what he recorded and that was it so this is an incredibly kind of cohesive work when not all of dylan um's are yeah, and, and it's it's interesting because obviously Dylan did this at the same time where you know Sergeant Peppers was going on, and this was the antithesis of that. Yep. It was it was guitar, bass, and drums, and all the songs had three verses and no chorus for most of them, or most of the songs had three verses, and it was just really stripped down. So yeah, I, I wouldn't really call it a concept album either, but it has an aesthetic to it. You know, it's it's funny because you know you look at a song like like Dear Landlord. And how it fits into the album, but also the time. Uh, there is no outtakes, or there, there, there probably is an outtake of Dear Landlord. But even the outtakes that we heard on Traveling Through of John Wesley Harding's songs, I mean, they're not that much different. They're just no. different takes. It's not like, you know, he would do in the 80s where he completely rewrote the song over years, or he did even in the 60s, or like Rolling Stone kind of grew and grew. Uh, these were just outtakes. You know, the guitar was a little different or something. Yep. It's a word. In a way, John Wesley Harding uh, is is kind of the whole thing's a letter to 
not Albert Grossman, and I don't think his record company, but but I think the the music business. Like, mm. You know, it, it's really. You know, I, I find little tidbits all over the album, but especially in Dear Landlord, he's talking about himself, I think. And and really, uh, you know, I, I think Dear Landlord's about the fans. I think he's he's talking to us. I think we're the landlord. In a, in a, in a, <laughs> and that hit me a few years ago. Uh, I don't know why it hit me. I can't remember. But, you know, if John, if he, if he so if you think of John Wesley Harding as the antithesis of what, what the music world was doing. And Dylan had time to kind of hang out in Woodstock, do the bass and tapes and have fun with it. Right. Uh, and it wasn't like he was rejecting the music business. I don't think, uh, but he definitely wanted to stand out from it. And you know what, when I read Dear, Dear Landlord now or, or hear it, cause you've got to hear it. It's, it's a song. It's meant to be sung. you know, especially that last verse, you know, uh, I love it when he says, don't dismiss my case. I'm not about to argue. I'm not about to move to no other place. So he, he's giving up the leverage he has. Because if you're a tenant, what leverage do you have? You can right. move, right? You can yeah, okay, right. move. I'm not going to renew my lease. And you have to find a new tenant. He's telling you, I'm, I'm not about to move to no other place. I'm, I'm, you you, you won, right? And, and I kind of look at Dylan as him telling us, listen, I'm, I'm not going to stop writing songs, Right. I'm, I can't do it. It's not in me to stop being a musician, but it's, it's my own, you know, it tells me, you know, each of us has his own special gift. Well, Dylan, we know what Bob Dylan's special gift is, right? Uh, it's writing songs and maybe making whiskey too, but, but mostly <laughs> writing songs is his special gift. Uh, he's not going to stop doing it. Uh, so, but I, I, it's kind of him saying, listen, you got to give me a little give and take here. You got to follow me when, when I'm going electric, when I'm doing John Wesley Harding, because I, I have no choice. I'm going to do it. And if you're going to make me write songs, if I'm kind of stuck being a songwriter, because there's nothing else I can be, uh, you know, if you don't underestimate me, I won't underestimate you. And I think that's a little awry kind of, I can picture him saying it with a, or singing it with a little smile on his face, you know, like, are you ready? Cause I'm not going to stop fooling you. I'm not going to stop, Throwing your curveballs. <laughs> it's a way of complimenting the audience by saying, look, I think you're, I think you're capable of going with me where I want to go. So don't underestimate me and I won't underestimate you. You know, you, you I know you're going to appreciate what I have next. I know you can, I know you're going to like it. You know, I know you're, maybe you're not going to like it, but you can at least, again, you can appreciate it. That kind well, of thing. And, and exactly. It's appreciate it. And, and then, you know, going back to the verb. The first verse with Dylan, I mean, how many times is he beautifully kind of turns an argument around on a line? You know, I do hope you receive it well, depending on the way that you feel that you live. Right. <laughs> so if you don't get it, man, that's on you. You know, it's not my fault. And that's, you know, that that little turn of phrase there that he does. And he, he turns arguments around. You know, he must be he must be an impossible person to argue with. He'd lose every argument. <laughs> but uh, but you're right. I, I love that. He kind of he puts it on us and it's like, listen, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take you here. Uh, you don't have to like everything I do, but but you can't you, you're not going to stop it. Yeah, I mean, there are other versions of this kind of, uh, you know, on the record. As we've talked about, I mean, I think the, the line from all along the watchtower about, you know, knowing the value of things, there's a little bit of a landlord kind of thing in there of like, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't devalue what I'm doing. You know, a landlord doesn't exactly devalue what someone is doing, but as you were talking about, if he's talking about to, but with his fans, it's don't devalue what I'm doing. Now I will tell you, I crafted this whole cockamamie theory in my head 
as to what the what the origin of the song was. And like I said, I am never suggesting that that's what it is because no, you can know that. But we all know that Bob is a, is a massive sponge. You know, he takes things in from books and television and, you know, at that point, the radio and things like that. I'm imagining that he sees a newspaper article about a fight between a landlord and a tenant. And it goes to like to the point where it has to be adjudicated like in a trial or at the very least in front of a judge or in front of police. And they're, you know, the judge wants to, excuse me, the, the landlord wants to kick the tenants out, but the tenant wants to stay in his different reasons. And for some reason, that story has bubbled up to the point where it's in the news. And I, I'm picturing Bob seeing that and being inspired to write that first line because as he said to Cameron Crowe in Biograph, he said, I basically just wrote the first lines, the first two lines, and I liked them. And I was like, well, let me let me just fill out the rest of the song. So he's got these dear landlord, please, please don't put a price on my soul. And we know that Bob has always felt a lot of kinship for the downtrodden, the put upon, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the drifters escape. The whole town is going against this mm-hmm. drifter who's wandered into town and things like that. And so imagining that that's the inspiration for this is he sees some story about somebody getting kicked out from their apartment or wherever they're living. And he immediately that it, that inspires something in him. And then it enlarges further to being about like you're talking about his audience where it's he's got the inspiration that comes from something real. But then it, it he infuses it with his meaning. And it's yes, I'm talking to this audience. And, you know, this is we have to remember this is 1967. People are not plugged in the way, unfortunately, in some ways we all are now. So he's sitting there in Woodstock. He's only talking to the people that he's allowing to come by. You have to, you know, you got to, and times are moving fast. You got to wonder, is he thinking, am I still conversant with my audience? Because mm-hmm. they haven't heard from me in a while. And there's a lot going on. It's the summer, you know, the summer of love is approaching, things like that. And so you have to wonder, he's like, okay, like, it's a little bit, it's not a pleading thing, but it is a little like, Hey, let's try and try to understand where I'm coming from. And I will appreciate where you're coming from as well. And so that to me, I had never had that in my head before as an inspiration. And of course, we'll never know whether that was ever true or not. But to me, it, it satisfies me is because we know he often gets inspiration from weird details. Yeah. He sees one thing somewhere and it sparks this whole other thing. I mean, you, you mentioned Desolation Row, it opens with the postcards from the hanging, which is a real event. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real thing. And it, what is it? What does that spin off into? 11 minutes of this phantasmagorical journey through all of America. <laughs> it starts with that one little thing that he saw as a child, which were postcards of someone being hanged. Yeah. And so I think a lot of his inspiration comes from that. So in my mind, that's, he sees the newspaper, he reads this story about a landlord and a tenant in some sort of battle. And bang, here comes the song. Well, I, I, I love that. I mean, I think that's really great. Uh, and, and yeah, you can imagine Dylan doing that. It's, it's funny because I, I heard the quote, you know, the, the first two lines. Uh, and I love the line because, you know, dear landlord, you know, you, you know, let's be simplistic and say, okay, it's a song about some guy writing to his landlord, you know, and you think uh, he's going to complain about, you know, the AC is on the fritz or he needs an extra week to come up with the rent. But no, uh, dear landlord, please don't put a price on my soul. It's like, wow, okay, that's intense. You know, I didn't quite, wasn't quite ready for that, you know, and it is an intense song. Um, And again, as I said earlier, there's nothing in the song about, you know, the window in a bathroom stock, you know, it's not, Hmm. it's, it's, it's more than that. Uh, Not that, I mean, Dylan could, of course, probably write 
many songs about about that kind of thing because those things are real and they happen to people especially the downtrodden that dylan's so often uh written about but but yeah i love that i mean you know you have to get inspiration from somewhere and you know you know now i'm thinking about it, i could see you know dylan picking up the the woodstock tribune and and seeing mm-hmm. it. and it's funny you mentioned uh uh the the case the situation goes so far it has to go in front of a judge and the judge, you know, obviously drifters escape and things like that. And then jury, the courtroom, let's say, plays a, you know, plays a part in John Wesley Harding a lot. And even in this song, you know, dear landlord, please don't dismiss my case. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's dear judge. But, you know, again, the landlord has the power. So does the judge, you know, don't dismiss my case. Uh, I have an argument here. I'm trying to say something. So I, I love that. And that, that could easily be done. And obviously, we all can imagine Dylan reading the newspaper about some poor dude, you know, in front of the judge and with his landlord with a nice lawyer. And, you know, Dylan's probably going to take the side of the guy, you know, and as we all are, you know, the underdog, you know, the guy who's trying to fight against his landlord or something uh, or the judge. And I think that that works uh, perfectly. And of course, who's the judge of his music? Uh, as much hmm. as Dylan might not really want to see it this way, and as much as we don't want to see it this way, pop music's a commodity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we hate to think of it like that, but it's a commodity. And for Dylan or anyone to be successful and make a living doing pop music, the judge, us, we have to like it to a certain extent, and a certain amount of people have to buy it and come see it. So uh, Dylan more than any other artist has gone against that and has tried to fight against it. Uh, and that tension has, has made his whole career in a way, but we're still the judge, you know, we, you know, please don't dismiss his case uh, when he changes it up, when he goes electric, when he finds Jesus, you know, when he goes country, don't dismiss it. There's something of value there. Uh, so I, I really like that, that kind of, that, that you mentioned kind of, you know, him seeing the scene in a courtroom, uh, because I definitely see it, even though it's just that one line. I, you know, it, to me, it's in the background of the whole song. Yeah. Um, I, one thing we haven't mentioned so far either is that he sings it beautifully. Yeah. Like it's just a beautifully sung. I mean, he really puts a lot of wonderful, you know, he, I mean, the, the whole record, I think, is sung beautifully, but some of the songs, you know, John Wesley Harding, the song is very breezy and kind of up tempo and just skip, but this has got this sort of, you know, torchy kind of ballad to it. And he really rings meaning out of the words. And I love in the second verse, the line about where he says, anyone can fill up, fill his life up with things he can see, but he just cannot touch, which is again, such a wonderful phrase of the idea of someone having a bunch of stuff that is, yeah, it's a physical item. It it has some sort of, you know, dollar value. And it means that you're a rich person or a very successful person, but they the the, the item doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't have any inherent value. And he even kind of paraphrases that in I pity the poor immigrant because there's the line about the guy who hears but does not see who falls in love with wealth, wealth itself. You know, I mean, there's that about like is these things that are there, but he can't, you know, they're, they're not really there. They sound like they're there, but they're not really there. And that's that that sort of goes through the whole record, which, again, it goes back to my feeling like this record is incredibly cohesive. Not yes. all of his records are, but this one really, really is. And it's so perfectly executed. And, well, uh, you know, and uh, two things. Uh, so about his voice, it's, it's great. It's one of his best vocal performances. And of course, again, I probably say that about 300 of his vocal performances, <laughs> whatever it's worth. 
uh, you know, I've been listening to the song a lot uh, in the past week, trying to prep for this uh, this occasion. And, you know, as I'm driving around, I'll mention my daughter again to, you know, taking her to places. Uh, it's on. And uh, today I was driving her somewhere and, uh, you know, the dear landlord's playing and he's going, dear landlord, making fun of his voice. And I stopped and I said, no, I know what you're doing. You just, <laughs> you just saw him at Farm Aid. So I get what you're getting at. <laughs> this song has a smooth vocal. And she goes, yeah, okay, it does. I'm just kind of <laughs> sick of the song by now. <laughs> I said, Fair enough. But his vocal's great on it. And, and I think she agreed. But, uh, you know, it's funny. You talk about John Leslie Harding being cool. And the whole, his vocals on John Leslie Harding. And, and I think the sound of John Leslie Harding is, is just great. It's one of the reasons I love it so much. Uh, and the, you know, the cohesiveness of it. So I always like the line. One of my favorite bits of John Leslie Harding is, the second to last verse of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, where the little neighbor voice is nothing is revealed. <laughs> I always thought it was a wry joke. Like, Oh, you want to read too much into my songs? Take this one, you know, what right. are you talking about. And then the end, nothing, nothing. I'm not talking about anything. Nothing is revealed. You're not getting anything out of the song. Uh, and, and I kind of, you know, I, I kind of relate that to the line. And maybe it makes sense to you. Maybe it doesn't. If you don't underestimate me, I won't underestimate you. Like, you know, uh, you know, it, you know, bear with me here. Sometimes I'm going to give you something. Sometimes I'm not, or you're not going to understand it, but, but you got to come along for the ride. And I think it's going to be a fun one. And of course, obviously, you know, 15 years later, I'd say it's a pretty fun ride. Absolutely. Now, this song was picked to appear on Biograph and. You know, I always feel like there's always something to be gleaned from that. Uh, in that, you know, obviously that rec- that set was full of uh, live performances and and unreleased songs, and that was really the 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 coin of the realm for that thing. That's why you kind of got it. But they also were pulling songs from his records mm-hmm. as kind of a greatest hits compilation, and this is this is on there, yeah. and that always you know indicates to me that Bob had some particular feeling about it. That, you know, among, uh, you know, out of all the other songs that could have made, could have been given that prime real estate on Biograph, this is one of them. And this was certainly not one of his most famous songs, but yet there it is. I always felt like that's, that says something about it. That said, he has very rarely performed it live. It's only been performed six times in in the last 55 years, not until 1992. And then a couple of times in the nineties, and then he last did it in 2003. You can find a bunch of them on YouTube, which yeah. I, um, it's kind of funny. You, you see him start play and you get that thing where people are, you can tell people are like, what, what song is this? And then of course, unlike other Dylan songs, it's the title is right at the first line. So with everybody's yeah. like, kind of like, what dear? Oh, okay. And then they start clapping as they know they're getting to hear something they really get to hear. But so yeah, only, uh, six performances live, kind of an interesting yeah. choice. And and I, I kind of, you know, John Wesley Harding's an album that we all know that, you know, he didn't tour for many years after that. When he finally did tour in 74, it was it was probably his only regular rock tour, right? It was all the big arenas and doing the hits and whatnot. And then it was a Rolling Thunder review and, and you know, and off from there. So John Wesley Harding gets lost because it didn't have the big hits except for Watchtower, which, of course, Hendrix did. And if Hendrix never did Watchtower, I'm convinced that Dylan wouldn't have played it 2,000 times. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he completely yeah. changed that song uh, for the better. I mean, Hend- I mean, I love the Dylan version, but Hendrix took it to a different place, let's say. Uh, so beyond that, I mean, none of these John Wesley Harding songs uh, were performed very much. And we did I'll Be Your Baby Tonight a lot later, and that's 
kind of the countryish thing. Uh, I don't want to discount that, but Richard Escape and Wicked Messenger were done kind of later in that never-ending tour era. That uh, my I, I like to think my era where I was, <laughs> going to, you know, a dozen, fifteen, twenty years a year. But yeah, as I went out one morning, never. Uh, I don't think he's ever played that live. Don West, or I think he did once or twice. I like, think he did once. I think yeah, I, I, I think that was like done literally like one time or something. Yeah, yeah. And Don Wesley Harding was never done. And uh, nope. I pity the Perimeter was done a few times, and he did that on Rolling Thunder review and and stuff like that. Uh, but never, none of these songs were done a lot. And I kind of think it's just it was a timing thing. Uh, and then he did Down Along the Cove a lot in the two thousand. I was like, what mm-hmm. about those songs, you know, and. and I don't not putting down along the cove down, you know, but uh, man, I would have loved to get more dear landlords out there. Uh, <laughs> but you know, hey, it's Dylan. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll tell again. I remember my first Dylan show in seventy in ninety seven, and uh, coming back and it's so excited. You know, as a young kid, and saying, "Oh, he didn't do this song. He didn't do this song." And finally, my dad said, "We he played for two hours. How many songs do you want him to do?" And uh, and you know, that's kind of what you have to what you kind of have to come from. So yeah, I, you know, it's easy to discount. And I'm I love live Dylan, and it's easy to say I never played the song a lot. Maybe it doesn't really mean a lot to him, or or he doesn't really like it. But I, I don't know. Maybe I give John Lucy Harding songs a pass because I love the album so much. Uh, he did put it on biography. It's not like he hasn't played it. He's done it. Uh, and maybe he and the live performances are great, but they don't really change the song. You know, he hasn't done any, he hasn't rewritten it in any drastic way. Either. Yeah, yeah, it's the same, the same basic uh, song that you heard again. I like. I mean, you know, he is playing keyboards. He's been playing keyboards for a long time, but Farm Aid accepted. Uh, he's been playing keyboards, and so this, you know, you could see this song being kind of a natural for that. And as we are heading into the next leg of Rough and Rowdy Ways tour. We're all hoping that he changes up the set list a little bit. So yeah. you know, you never do know. You never know with Dylan at all. That's a, I was at the New York show where he did Yay Heavy and a Bottle of Bread. And that's a deep cut. That's uh, a deep, deep cut. At one point, I thought I was the only one in Madison Square Garden who knew what the heck he was playing. Uh, I didn't <laughs> care. I was like, what are you doing? I love the guy who's always big basement taste, man. And uh, so if he can do Yay Heavy and a Bottle of Bread, uh, he can do Dear Landlord. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Obviously, whatever he's going to do, he's going to do, and, and we're going to love it. But uh, uh, it'll be interesting. Absolutely. Well, that's a good place to wrap it up. Brian, thank you so much for doing this. Once again, thank you for the donation to the Human Rights Campaign. I really yeah, do appreciate it. And thank you so much for doing this. It was great talking to you. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you know, enjoy the podcast a lot. So uh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the Internet? Yeah, so uh, Brian McCaskill, I think the Twitter tag is, or X tag, are we calling it that now? Uh, Brian McCaskill. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, my, my Twitter stuff is basically just, you know, a few Dylan stuff and some other jokes. Uh, occasionally I'll tweet about uh, uh, the Yankees or something. I'm a pretty big sports guy, but but mostly it's just some Dylan stuff and, and some music, things like that. Uh, so not really huge on social media. Uh, but yeah, if anyone wants to follow for, for an occasional Dylan quip or something that I'm good for, that's fine. The same, uh, same name on Blue Sky, which, uh, is probably more Dylan orientated at this point. Uh, at least who I follow in my little, little yes. Form. Oh, yeah. It's very Dylan pure. My Blue Sky account over there is very Dylan pure at this point. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I like. It's, it's, it's very nice. <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay. We got to do our exit question. Yep. Uh, which is, and I, you know, maybe I know the answer to this, maybe not. Uh, if there's any recording session for anything Bob has ever done that you could sit in on and just be a fly on the wall for, what would it be? 
So a uh, great question. I, I thought first time I heard you ask it about a year and a half ago, I said, wow, that's a good question. So I don't want to be a fly in the wall when he's doing blood on the tracks or blonde on blonde, because I'm afraid I'm going to sneeze and ruin a cut and he's not going to do the song anymore. <laughs> Those are almost too holy. You know, it's too reverent. I can't be on it. I can't be in the room. Uh, but the the one answer, I, I, it didn't take me long when I first heard it to come up with it. It was another one of my favorite albums that I think has a lot of similarities to John Wesley Harding uh, in, in a weird way. But it's Love and Theft. I love Love and Theft. You know, we talked about uh, Time Out of Mind was my first Dylan album I heard fresh. But Love and Theft, I was a little older, you know, I was 17 and I was, I was more into it. Uh, and the reason I want to be there is, uh, one, I love the fact that he brought his touring band and gave it a great sound. And who doesn't want to hang out with Tony Garnier too, right? And Larry Yeah. King. Uh, but I, I, Love and Theft to me is such a craftsman album, you know, uh, it's easy to dismiss freewheeling Bob Dylan as just, he wrote those songs out of thin air. It was magic, right? I mean, your Desolation Run was magic, right? Uh, but Love and Theft, just as good of an album, but it had a craft to it. It was almost like he was building it. I knew he draw inspiration from a lot of different places or drew inspiration from a lot of different places uh, to make that album uh, musically and lyrically. So to see him kind of putting it together and mixing these musical styles, mixing these lyrics, uh, to me, it's his most songwriting craft album that he has. And, to just be there and see him putting those songs together uh oh man that would have been awesome i do hope we get more outtakes from love and theft i don't know if they're coming uh or not but uh but if if all we ever get is that album i'd I'd be pretty happy to but yeah to be there uh, with all those guys uh i think it'd be pretty cool that would be great yeah there i mean think about what there is we still have not heard all the whatever there must be alt takes and out uh, out song other songs from all of those records all yep. those jack frost yep. records i mean we've gotten a little bit here and there from modern times here in the gen you know a couple until till signs but for the most part all those records we have not heard much of anything leak so think no. about that treasure trove that's exactly and at some and point. The only one we have is Mississippi from the from the time of the mind stuff. Yep. Which is which is kind of a unique song because it bridges two different albums. Uh and you know, you can obviously talk forever about that song, uh, which is a great song. But but yeah, I mean I would love the and you know there's more versions of High Water. <laughs> like you know oh, sure. that song. And just the way those songs are composed, there's so many levels to that that oh man i mean just uh, i mean you can give me a 20 disc disc box set of love and dead and i'd be a very happy man and probably have to take a month or two hiatus from work <laughs> 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 i would be, be very happy uh and who knows maybe we'll get it maybe we won't but uh yeah that that's that's the album uh that i would just really love a, a deeper dive into all right great answer well again brian thank you so much for doing this yep. i really appreciate it uh-huh. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Of course, you can find the show on Twitter and Blue Skies, we just mentioned, at uh, as just Pod Dylan. And if you want to support this show and hear the full extended episodes every week, plus our bonus shows, please subscribe to Pod Dylan on Apple Podcasts or on fmpods.com. And really appreciate it. So that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you later. Bye. I think there's something that you should know, Mother. What's that, dear? I think I love a girl who's a Negro. Didn't we all go together to see Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Mary's Production Company presents The Landlord. Okay? Okay! Starring Pearl Bailey as March, Diana Sands, Lee Grant, and Bo Bridges as The Landlord.